0: He's gonna, gonna get, get you. you! He's gonna get you! He's gonna, He's gonna,
1: gonna get you! you. The boogeyman is coming! Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. This week sees the conclusion of Daily Horror Habits series review of Don Coscarelli's Surreal and Strange Phantasm. My guests and I have dissected each of the first four entries in this cult status series that has thus far presented even its most absurd or bizarre narrative and character arcs with brash confidence, making each entry thus far an enjoyable smorgasbord of horror humor, And dreamlike logic. And for this week's discussion, my guests and I are taking a look at the final film in the franchise. Notably, the first film in the series not directed by Coscarelli himself, as director and co writer David Hartman would take the reins while Coscarelli co wrote the script with him. The film picks up after the events of the previous film, with Reggie continuing his never ending fight against the tall man while trying to decipher his reality after years of interdimensional travel. And joining me to chat orbs, dreamlike logic, and phantasm is returning friend of the show and the host of the Spectre Cinema Club podcast, Devon Taylor. Devon, welcome back to the show, man.
0: Hello, hello. Thank you for having me back. Very excited. It's uh, kind of been a minute since I've been on the show and uh, uh, very excited to be able to wrap up a uh, very strange, bizarre franchise with you.
1: Yeah, man. It's always a pleasure having you on to chat. Um, And I think that with a series such as Phantasm, I think... It's great to kind of see what people think about just this very singular brand of the bizarre, right? I think that it's a series that if you make it all the way to the end of it, clearly you're on board with sort of the uh, the very, like I said, singular sort of blending of horror and fantasy and all of these different sort of subgenres together into something that, while, you know, has its cult status, as I said, it still very much feels like a niche series um, that, maybe takes a little more buy-in to get into than some other horror series from this time period. But uh, I'm curious, you know, for you, what is sort of your experience been with Phantasm? Because like, much like myself, you only just recently started to make your way through all the sequels. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how did, how have you found Coscarelli's very signature brand of the uh, bizarre?
0: Yeah, so this was a, interestingly enough, I had never like heard of any of the Phantasm movies until Ravager came out. Because I remember Ravager uh, released on Shudder originally. So I was like, wait, what is this? And people were like going crazy as if it was like this thing that everyone knows about. And I was like, wait, I'm so confused. What is Phantasm? And there's four other movies like, wait, I'm uh, what's going on here? So it was like because like I just did like it was kind of one of those deep cult statuses, I suppose, that people will kind of let you find on your own rather than, uh, rather than the fan base, like kind of clamoring for like other people to watch it. I feel like, uh, uh, the big fans of this franchise are like, this is, you know, this is our like little weird, uh, little thing that we got here. And if you find it cool, but like, you know, I'm not gonna, uh, you don't see people, uh, really campaigning for Phantasm to be like kind of mentioned as far as up there with some of the other horror franchises but uh, I very much appreciated uh, at least the um you know consistency the creative continuity I love when a franchise is able to have somebody uh you know shepherd the whole series through and uh, interestingly enough how this one is you know five movies almost over 40 years uh, is uh, is very wild to me and uh, so so I started watching them whenever um we just covered the the whole series like about a month and a half ago over on pod and pendulum and I did the first Phantasm movie on there and then was meant to, you know, kind of stick with it. And I was going to do a few more, but then I kind of uh, fell off a little bit. But, you know, over time, I've been just like kind of sprinkling in uh, watching uh, the the rest of the entries. So these have been all first time watches for me, like within this past couple months.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I had seen the original Phantasm because, you know, I do a series of live tweets Every week. And this was one of the films that somebody in our group suggested. And so I had seen the first movie maybe two or three times before doing this series review. But it was one of those things when it's like, okay, there are plenty of well known series that I haven't done reviews for yet. Why don't I try something that is a little more off the beaten path that gives me an excuse to, you know, actually seek out these movies that normally I might not? So I started with this series review with that in mind of like, well, I'm going to go out of my comfort zone a little bit because nobody in my immediate circle talks about Phantasm or has really recommended it to me past the original film. And so what I was really pleasantly surprised to find with, you know, going through two, three, four, and now Ravenger, is while, you know, each of the films is slightly different. Different, You know, you have various degrees of studio involvement that dictate, you know, Coscarelli having to pull back a little bit on that dreamlike feeling of the original in making the second movie, but then less studio interference with the third gives him more of that creative freedom that he had with a bigger budget than the original. So the series, and like you said, five films over 40 years, has had these ups and downs in terms of like studio, either interference or kind of studio hands on various budgets right this they start with a meager budget of like 300k they get all the way up to 300 or 3 million dollars for a budget and then they end up going like right back down to i think like 250 for um uh for oblivion but then you end up on something like Ravenger, which very clearly did not have a big budget and yet there is still that coscarelli brand of like oh I'm going to introduce these very strange variables that have been present since the very first film, but he's going to kind of like play around with the formula just enough. Um, I think that it's rare that when you have, you know, a single director that has been at the helm of a majority of a series, they don't, you know, kind of rests on a little bit of the uh, frameworks that were presented in earlier films, but he's still expanding on it in new and weird ways. And, that's not always to say that works in every single sequel, as I'm sure we will uh, get into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think, at the very least, it makes a majority of the sequels um, entertaining, but also surprising in ways that differ from the previous film. But at the same time, it feels very much in line with sort of fit Phantasm's brand of uh, the bizarre.
0: Yeah, it's you know I, I tip my hat off co- to Coscarelli again for you know just being able to kind of stick with it and. It's a testament to what you kind of want out of being an artist, out of being a filmmaker. And it's interesting how you almost kind of have to choose whether, you know, okay, I'm going to stick with, you know, my one, my baby, my creative thing. And, you know, I'm going to stick with it through, you know, whatever the budget is. I'll make adjustments, you know, and it's super cool to see that. Yeah. Like you said, there's different tones and different things are able to be done in each film, depending on, you know, what the budget was for that specific one. But the fact that he is still able to, you know, keep that consistency, especially, you know, the the drop between three and four, where it's like he goes from having his highest budget to his lowest budget and still having to, like, kind of keep that uh, continuity going. Uh, So it's like it's cool that he, you know, chose to do this and, you know, hustle, you know, whatever money he could get to, like, kind of keep making them. And, you know, he still did some films in between here and there and did, like, uh, some TV work as well. But he's never uh, been, you know, a, you know, uh, any of his things making lots of money or anything like that. Like, I just love that. It's like, you know, he does this because, you know, he genuinely loves it. Like, this is his baby. And he's like, you know, just like, I'm going to do whatever I can to kind of keep this going. And, uh, he really, um, you know, gets the, uh, uh, I think it, and that's also fueled by, you know, the cult status of it, the fans, because, you know, the first one kind of garnered such a fan base that a lot of, um, you know, crew members and volunteers between two and three were a lot of fans that were doing work and effects and like, you know, being extras and uh, sometimes doing it for, you know, little to no money just because they wanted to be a part of this franchise. So he really gets that. And I feel like that um definitely adds to the fuel of him being able to, you know, continue on this uh, series for, you know, pretty much his entire career.
1: Yeah, you know, it really is evident that this is such a passion project of his because like you'd mentioned earlier, that gap between each of the films, um, you know, it's the type of thing where it's like, as soon as the budget gets slashed as much as some of these films do, uh, it's the type of thing where you're like, oh, well, Maybe he's going to put this on ice for, you know, a decade, two decades, and maybe never come back to it because of the fact that, like, he's a talented guy and he clearly has had work in between the Phantasm films. So he's not coming back to these like, oh, this is going to be my payday or anything like that. And, you know, while I think there's you know, a majority of people that probably don't appreciate Oblivion um, as much as, you know, my guests and I did last week, I will say that, you know, I think that that film serves as an example of him being very resourceful with what he's able to do, right? And not to say that that's best entry in the series or anything like that, but that is the entry that uses the most cut footage from the previous films, right? And Mm -hmm. it's pretty blatantly obvious, the insertion of those. But you know, what I was so impressed with, even if at times that movie does really drag, it's the fact that for me, it felt so seamlessly integrated. Like he does this thing where he reuses footage, but he's able to compartmentalize it within the current film's narrative in a way that feels less egregious, I think, than some other movies in the horror space that, you know, have heavily relied, and there's plenty of examples, heavily relied on, you know, either reusing old footage or introducing, you know, cut footage that never made into that original uh, final feature, and you know, for him to come back after all those years between three and four, it was the type of thing where I was like, oh, I'm expecting this to be far messier than it actually was, and to see a film that is able to, you know, have its shortcomings, whether that's the result of the budget or even he admits at a point he was like, I didn't really have a story here to tell past, you know, we're gonna keep this feud with the tall man going. Um, it was the type of thing, though, where it felt like it was a proper sort of conclusion to a series that, like I said, had been on ice for uh, a number of years. And to some extent, Ravenger feels like an extension of Oblivion sort of in that regard, because this originally began filming in like 2008, I think. And it was supposed to be a web series, like a series of shorts that focused on Reggie mm. and kind of like Hope the hope I think was that it was going to garner enough interest that oh this will you know if Kickstarter was around back then kickstart funding kickstart phantasm yeah, like a proof of concept back. type deal exactly and to see it flourish into a full feature film uh, is maybe a uh, interesting decision uh, based off of the final product here but uh, I'm curious you know for you like what did you think about them. Bring Phantasm back and really allowing Reggie to be the sort of main drive of the film, more so than in any previous film. You know, he was largely a sidekick. And in this, it feels like he is the true star of his own Phantasm film.
0: Yeah. I mean, in regards to like, it, using the previous footage and stuff, I really like it with this series because again, like one, it does have its practical purposes of being able to, you know, make up for some things here and there, but the, the series has always done it like literally since two, like they all kind of, the ending would bleed into the beginning, uh, using certain footage. And then like, yeah, obviously an oblivion uh, is the most egregious example of it. Um, but even still, it doesn't come like close to like somewhere like uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night Two. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know this. It still has a purpose, and it also adds to like the disorientation of it. That especially uh, with this film, um, you know the the movies kind of go back and forth between that post apocalyptic feel and then that also that uh, very uh, cerebral like kind of bizarre kind of angle to it and five does its best to like finally try to like really bring a true balance to that and give the most of it that they can for the end of it and which you know uh is successful to various degrees um throughout the film just because again of you know the budget and everything and um but i i honestly feel like reggie took over the series after three or at or in three because that's where, you know, we kinda get the first uh gist of cause uh three, four, and five they keep using the the thing of, you know, Reggie and Mike being separated. Uh which is kind of unfortunate, but that is kind of what um is what shuffles it to uh reggie kind of taking over the series and being like okay like he's got the built-in tragedy just as much as um as jody and michael do um and then he is like kind of this like little every man that people very much gravitate towards and related to so it just made sense and then it became him being like you know the main character and uh, being the protector of michael and michael you know in the last three films kind of becomes more of, um, I wouldn't say like a, you know, a plot device, but I mean, kinda, uh, I think that's partially because I don't think a Michael Baldwin is a good actor, uh, <laughs> pa- after the first film. Um, so I feel like they kind of do it, uh, a little bit in that angle. Cause Reggie is easily the most, uh, consistently, you know, good, uh, performer throughout the, the films. As far as acting goes, because, you know, he also didn't really do much besides these movies, aside from like a few other like little spots here and there. Um, And same for a Michael Baldwin. Like, that's why he skipped out of two. He just like wasn't acting at all uh, at that point. And then they kind of brought him back into and three was like his like first time acting again in like 15 years or something. Um, So it's like the the way that they, you know, again, like use all the things that kind of happen outside of the film and still incorporate it in uh, is still really good. Like, I mean, in four, I wouldn't even call it messy. It's just like boring. It's just kind of there. It it, it happens. And it, you know, we kind of go through some of the same motions that we did in, uh, some of the previous films. And it's, you know, it's there to be like, Hey, the, the series is still here. Um, it still has some life to it. And like, we can still do some fun stuff in it. Like it's, it's not bad. It's just kinda, it's just uh kind of there, but also, um, uh, It's interesting because Oblivion was supposed to uh, Cascarelli was going to direct a script from like someone else who was like mainly a fan, but he was like he was a screenwriter, but like mainly a big fan of the series and wrote his own like uh, follow up to three. And Coscarelli liked it and he was like, okay, and it was gonna kinda be more the big post-apocalyptic thing that we get in Ravager. But again, like that's when he got like the smallest budget. And he's like, oh, we like can't film this like at all. So uh let's throw some ideas together and let's put, you know, four out. So uh for for you know for it coming from that kind of angle, it's still, you know, a very competent, really put together film.
1: Yeah, and I think that for Oblivion, what I was so appreciative of the fact was that while you know, they are sort of reusing all this footage, whether it's necessary to really introduce some of it is questionable. But what I think has been the element that has really allowed all these films to resonate with me perhaps more so at times, despite some of the budgetary constraints, which you know are clearly notable at certain points throughout the series, is that Reggie and Mike relationship. And the one thing I really did like about Oblivion was the fact that It continues that through line of their relationship, right, of having this almost adoptive Mm -hmm. uh, big brother or father kind of thing between Reggie and Mike uh, once, you know, Jody is killed and whatnot. But what I really did like about Oblivion was that it uses all of the footage from the – primarily from the original film to really solidify that relationship. Like there's one moment where it's like just – It's just Mike kind of like stealing an ice cream bar or something from his truck or whatever. And it's like, Mm -hmm. on one hand, sure, that doesn't drastically change the uh, sort of dichotomy of their relationship or doesn't have some big impact on the overall arc. But it does reinforce just like this brotherly relationship and how that's really grown and why that is the drive that has kept Reggie in this fight and made him evolve as, you know, just the sort of uh you know stoner ice cream man guitar friend into this sort of like i think as he puts it like soldier of the apocalypse or something like that
0: (laughs) yeah he definitely has a he definitely has a cool little evolution throughout and uh in the first movie the thing that really did stick out to me was um the fact that it was you know this uh you know is not to say that we obviously don't have like male led horror films and things like that but like this is like the closest that like a like male actor has like been a like traditional final girl in that film and like kind of going and feeling the same things and like being able to see that you know these all these guys have you know this uh portrayal of their emotions of feeling grief of uh feeling confused and uh just being scared because even yeah. a lot of times whenever you get, like, the, the final final boy in a lot of movies, he's still, like, kind of trying to act all tough all the time and all these things and, like, they usually try to like make them a badass or something. It's like, yeah. no, these are still just like regular guys that have like these regular fears. And it's super refreshing to see throughout the film that you just see these two men, uh, you know, be best friends, be found family, you know, to this degree. And it be just so like very earnest and unabashed with it. Um, so it, you know, the, the, the bond throughout, throughout the five films is, uh, always been there for me. Like I've, I've been, uh, you know, with, uh, it, um, signed into to reggie and mike since the first and second one and then ever since after i'm just like yeah like i totally buy this like i it's like a, it's funny i feel like reggie like loves mike even more than jody but like but 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 <laughs> yeah. most of the but but like most of the jody we see in like three through five like isn't real jody or whatever so i don't know but um but it's like you feel it though
1: yeah and i think that to your point that you made earlier in terms of you know reggie banister as reggie He has had the most growth throughout all of the films in terms of acting ability, right? He really has settled into that character over the course of those five films in a way that feels more confident. It feels like he's not only become more competent of an actor, but comfortable in that role that he's able to have some type of growth while still being true to a lot of the sort of fundamentals of what makes Reggie this perfect sort of found family member. Um, yeah. And I, I really, really appreciated the fact that, you know, he was able to keep coming back and getting more and more airtime, if you will, because like you said, as much as uh, enjoy young Mike's performance, like a Michael Baldwin is not stealing the show for me. Jody, as you put it, you know, doesn't <laughs> he almost seems indifferent to his uh, younger brother at times. And even when he comes back, it's kind of like, OK, like I, yeah. I could see how this could be somebody being mind controlled because there's like no emotion ever.
0: It's a it's a bit of a carry job here with Reggie, not gonna lie. Like, uh, (laughs) you know, he he definitely um, holds the weight between uh, the relationship between Mike and Reggie, uh, for sure. But like, definitely like carrying this franchise within itself. I mean, I don't know if this is controversial, but from what I hear, maybe Uh, other Mike in part two, he was really good. I know I I love having the continuity of again having you know the same exact trio from the first movie throughout the films uh, and you know they they've recasted in the second film and I thought he was good I thought uh, he uh, kind of showed uh, a side of Mike that I was like very excited to see like him and Reggie be like this like dynamic du- like a truly dynamic duo but then. I feel like they bring a Michael Baldwin back, you know, we get the the continuity back from the first one, which is, which is nice. And like, you know, it pays off because, you know, since they use so much footage of like uh, from the first Phantasm movie, like, God damn, how much footage did they shoot? Um, because <laughs> yeah. they've had, they've had a shit ton of like footage of young Mike from that first one. So it, it it helps in that angle, but I feel like uh them uh compensating for a Michael Baldwin's abilities is again, like kind of what, uh, leans them into being like, okay, uh, we're, we're going to give Reggie the keys. And this is, this is his, uh, baby now.
1: (laughs) And I think that that's why I was on board for about half of Ravenger uh, more than I thought I was going to be just because learning that he was going to be, you know, the true protagonist of this film, he was going to be given, you know, basically the complete keys to Phantasm with Ravenger And I I will admit, I really like the idea behind Ravenger. this idea that he is somebody that has been doing so much of this interdimensional travel and, you know, fighting God knows how many uh, versions of the tall man and his minions that he's now struggling to identify which timeline he is in. And this is probably the most true to form in terms of Coscarelli's signature brand of dreamlike logic, um, than any of the other sort of, uh, you know, films in the series and whatnot. It's the type of thing that um, I think feels more in line with his original identity. And if anything, you know, while there are definitely some shortcomings, um, it is the type of thing that it feels in line, even if it does not necessarily always have the best uh, uh, execution, if you will.
0: Yeah, it definitely, um, the, this, this last movie does feel, uh, the kind of closest in tone to the first one, um, which, you know, we'll get into our rankings, but I feel like everyone knows that the first one is easily the best and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, very much for having this dreamlike quality to it. And, uh, and I, have always loved that. And like, I love that throughout the series it literally took until this last movie until the tall man telling us finally what his fucking plan is. Like, it's been five movies of me trying to figure out what is really happening in this <laughs> in this story. Like, what is happening? What is he doing? Which reality is real? And I do love that uh, this fifth movie kind of culminates in like, being the most confusing out of, like, all of them. Like, I was uh, so confused the whole time until he finally, like, spells it out and, like, to be able to kind of keep that bizarre tension for five movies is interesting i don't know if that's because uh not the best writing and they kind of can afford to to kind of uh mess up here and there uh and and be uh confusing and like use it to their advantage or if it is like all intentionally you know uh disorienting but either way it, it truly works for me and yeah this um because the, the tone, you know, like you said, throughout the uh, different films shifts between like, you know, second movie is the, the on the road, you know, um, you know, kind of hunting him down movie. And then the third one is where we kind of get like now it's the post-apocalyptic and like, you know, navigating that way. And then the fourth movie like gets like serious again after like the third one reintroduced some of those dream qualities. And then the fifth one is like kind of just like a crockpot of all of them.
1: Yeah. And I think that, again, one of the through lines throughout all the films has been their relationship. And to have that be such a central sort of bedrock of Ravager, uh, it's the type of thing that just, again, feels very much in line with Coscarelli's original sort of ideal of what this series would be. And I loved that, you know, while it might have been (laughs) primarily because of all the budget constrictions and whatnot that this film had, and just having a majority of the scenes be you know, Reggie and Mike in various timelines talking, I liked that the focus was there on them. And, you know, while there is portions of this film, that is, again, Reggie trying to rejoin Mike, which is very sort of tiresome at this point, as I think we both agree. Uh, It's nice just to see the two of them get to sort of, I don't know, pontificate on their relationship and what that has been like. And the fact that, you know, Reggie is not quite sure which version of Mike he's talking to or what reality he is currently in. And at the end of the day, the root of their conversations, the time period and the when doesn't really matter because the two of them are, you know, having this very sort of uh, bittersweet remembrance of what their life has been like, um, even if they can't necessarily remember the true origin of it at certain points. Um, and I think that that at the end of the day, is the most important thing to to like really get across uh, with those two characters and you know the battles with the tall man aside I think that it's important that if you are going to again have this sort of dreamlike exploration of this journey and how traumatic it's been and all these things, that those two at least get enough screen time together to uh, you know process that grief and trauma together.
0: Yeah, I, I really love the way that you put that because it's it's so funny that like for how weird and bizarre this series is, it has never not been earnest. Like it has mm. always been, you know, 100 percent earnest. And so the fact that they can really have this poignant and wholesome, uh, you know, kind of emotional catharsis at the end of like you just said, like, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, which timeline, like they love each other and that's all that matters. And I love that, you know, they're taking uh, that typically for like you know star-crossed lovers kind of story but it's like no this is again like this is star-crossed family mm-hmm. uh, between these two men and that's that's refreshing guys it's okay to talk about your feelings to each other it, like you can tell each other uh you know how how much you appreciate them and feel and stuff and uh and it's actually really beautiful like it definitely like at that little montage at the end i was like i was like damn i'm
1: a, I'm a little emotional about this <laughs> Yeah, man. I don't know if it's because I've been watching these films for the first time in such a short period of time, but you know, going through 40 years essentially of these films and very clearly seeing these actors, you know, getting older and whatnot, and then it just the line, uh, "Reggie, you are my rock," uh, and it always begins the same. I'm tracking like those lines carry more emotional weight to them um, than I think again, the the reason those lines only really work, I think, is just because, again, of not only how comfortable these characters are in these roles by this point, but also it's that earnestness, right? At no point, say what you want about Jody, at no point has Reggie and uh, Mike's relationship ever been sort of like, oh, I'm not really buying this. No, it has been kind of what it is from day one. So when you get to this finale and whether or not, you know, you really needed this fifth film, I think especially after Oblivion, which kind of just has the perfect ending to phantasm. But with this film, I think they had the they were able to get them to return. So they give us these moments that maybe are rooted mostly in fan service, but they at least come across just as endearing, uh, I think, as they should be, and that you would expect from people that again, have been in this world uh, and mostly this world for a better part of their career. That's interesting that
0: you say that four would have been a perfect ending. I'm, I am I disagree because <laughs> I felt, again, that four was like a little like underwhelming uh, in the way. So I don't know. Maybe I did kind of uh, have the feeling that some other fans felt of like because, yeah, five with the amount of fan service, it does kind of feel like. OK, the, 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 the last ending, because maybe Oblivion was meant to be the ending, but it's like, OK, maybe the last ending wasn't exactly what it could have been. So like, all right, let's let's give it one more whirl. And like this movie does have that energy to it. But again, in a very like wholesome, like kind of familial way, that's like, OK, yeah, we're, we're going to do it one more time and we're going to give you guys everything and like really uh you know cement this relationship between them uh you know the the scenes where they are talking are like A Michael Baldwin's like best acting uh scenes throughout the film like you for know sure. like there was a very genuine reading whenever he was like he was like you know what you did for me you know looking after me for all these years like you know I I can never thank you like enough or like I or I owe you more than than you'll ever know and I was just like, damn, I was like, like, I, I feel that, like, I do mm-hmm. feel that between these two. And um, so, yeah, even if some of the uh, film does feel a little bit fan servicey in certain angles to like, kind of give you, give you callbacks. Cause like this does, um, it feels like a greatest hits kind of movie. Like, yeah. We're kind of doing a lot of the same things. Like we do have Mike and Mike and Reggie, they're separated for the first, luckily only like the first like third of the movie for most of the movie, they are kind of back together where, whether, it's in whichever reality um, yeah. that they're in, uh, at the, at the moment. And, um, uh, you know, so, so we do kind of have that and it's like, we, we see the same stuff of Reggie, uh, you know, helping out a girl and then picking her up. <laughs> and, and it was funny cause you're kind of thinking like, Oh, it's going to be the usual. Like it's going to be one of the tall man's tricks again. Like Reggie, when will you ever learn? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, I felt like I was talking to a friend at that point and then, sure and then they like kind of subvert it. it's like oh he actually missed his chance for once and it wasn't gonna be a uh a trick you know <laughs> so it's like he, he he missed his shot again um but so it's like it feels like the greatest hits kind of in that in that angle you know we get like some uh classic cuda action we get the spheres doing their thing um the and it gets a little muddy in the middle but then again like, once it gets to uh, its attempt at having a big, epic, nightmarish finale, it looks a little cheesy. But again, it's like, hey, you're you're trying to g- you're trying your best to give us like what we want for a finale in this. So I feel like it uh, uh, feels uh, definitely more of a better capper than uh, the end of four would have been for me.
1: I, you know, I think the reason why I view four as being a perfect ending is because. That final conflict at the very end between Mike and Reggie and the tall man, it plays out with us thinking that Mike has been killed, right? So it's the idea that no matter what they really do in the planning and no matter how long they've been pursuing him, it really is this fruitless endeavor on their part, because no matter what they do, there's going to be this infinite army of tall men. And what I liked about the ending before... Was that, you know, it shows Reggie, you know, staying true to his friend and, you know, the importance of loyalty to him, which he talks about in uh, Ravager. And yet in this, in Oblivion, he just, you know, without thinking, dives right back into that portal to chase the tall man to wherever the hell he's going next. And then you have that really nice dreamlike moment, which feels very on brand and sort of signature for Coscarelli, where they're having this sort of dreamlike drive in the ice cream truck. Into another dimension and whatnot. And they kind of have this moment of like, oh, did you hear something? Which is like them screaming in another reality. And so it's a very bleak Mm -hmm. ending or bleak capping to the series. But if anything, I think that type of an ending really does just strengthen the bond of theirs. And that, you know, while the audience is in on the fact that, you know, they probably are not going to have the resolution that they want they have each other in this never-ending, multi-dimensional sort of apocalypse. Um, And I guess, again, in thinking about just the budgetary constrictions that Oblivion had, the fact that he's able to make moments like that that are very bittersweet moments, uh, but at the same time it carries a certain amount of weight, um, that I'm really, you know, the more I got into the series, I was surprised he was able to really retain that, again, thinking about the breaks that the series has had over 40 years, A lot of the time, you know, if you have these long incremental breaks between sequels and whatnot, you start to see like certain people not be able to pick up the pieces perfectly where they were, whether that's the actors or the creative side of things. But Phantasm, maybe it's a credit to the uh, dreamlike nature of things. It really doesn't feel like it misses a beat going through all the way to the finale. Um, But, you know, I think that that's just a testament to like Coscarelli and that ingenuity with having the same blueprint basically for four films and yet he's able to kind of remix things enough that it builds upon the best strengths i think of the series yeah
0: i mean i think it might also be like you know when you watch a few of these in a row like kind of the way that we have in like kind of close succession you're able to see the the formula a little bit more clearly And uh, so the ending of four, though, I do think it is a really great ending. It also just kind of feels like that perfect tie in on like how they typically do like because like at the end of one, like it was like kind of that same thing. It was like all dreamlike and cozy, but then we know that the danger is still there. And so it's like for the ending, it's still good because it does feel like It does feel like oh, they're kind of classic lead in to be like, uh-huh, nope, you're, you're still not safe as usual. We'll see you in the next one, boys. Uh, prepare to be miserable some more. Enjoy your happiness for a minute. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's like it, 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 and it's interesting because I, I would very much love to hear somebody's opinion who's gotten to uh, follow this in real time like someone that, you know, has been there from the get and like they, you know, would sit there and wait seven to 10 years in between films. Like, I want to know uh, kind of what that experience is like and like if um, they do feel like this is like kind of a a worthy culmination.
1: But, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about Reggie and Mike, and I think that one person we haven't mentioned yet who does get to, you know, appear in the film who has been also a consistent member is uh, Angus Scrim, right? So he got to come back and at this point he was a very older gentleman, um, mm-hmm. but he still gets a good amount of screen time and, you know, there's definitely one or two moments where it's like, okay – can't do as much perhaps as he used to be able to, but he does get at least a couple of scenes where he gets to sort of monologue, uh, which has always been sort of the, another through line, right? Is that the tall man doesn't say very much, but when he does speak, it is very sort of like resounding in the sense that it's like, yeah, he's never had uh, a great deal to do physically in these films, but if anything, you know, he is just as captivating, if not more, I think some horror antagonists that have been in several sequels just based on the fact that he has this very ominous presence and, you know, maybe we don't get uh, a boy that was as uh, as uh, rich and lively as it was early on in the series. But I think just having him be, you know, a part of this final chapter and at the same time, you know, he got to see a screening of it before he unfortunately passed, uh, passed away. Uh, that's kind of another layer to, again, just, you know, the through line of this being A series that's built upon, you know, people that really did, you can tell, have like a great love for it. Uh, Or at least, you know, it has that feeling of family past the screen that these people were willing to come back after these large gaps and be such a central part to the film.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's uh, definitely cool seeing him uh, recur throughout. And, and I'll say him and Reggie both age like fairly well uh, throughout the throughout the films. Like it's really not until this film where you really start kind of noticing like, OK, they're they're a little bit old, especially yeah, the, the tall man here. And because it's funny, he doesn't move in this movie. Like yeah. all of his monologues are standing and he does one scene laying in a bed. Uh, yep. <laughs> which but he but he doesn't need it because he's st- he's still got the voice and yeah it's not doesn't have the power behind it but still has uh the the sinisterness it still has the the same touch he's had throughout the five films and again like just a testament to him as a performer to be able to pick it up each time in each film I mean he has uh he has the the cold his coldest line of the of the franchise in this one uh your tenacity has amused me and I've enjoyed your despair I was like ooh (laughs) I was like that gave me like some pinhead vibes like I really uh really love that I was like dropping some bars here on the way out so uh (laughs) even though yeah in this one he definitely isn't as thin as he was in the previous films he still has uh, that imposing look and like he still has uh, the facial expressions to like kind of emphasis certain, uh, lines that he does. And, uh, and yeah, so it's still great to get to see him, um, uh, you know, do it one more time. And, uh, even in, again in that, like in, in the finale, uh, it, the finale is such a mess. It's so weird, but at the same time, I feel like it's the only way that they could have <laughs> ended this movie. And like, so like kind of seeing him in that like weird, like hellscape like scenario was like kind of amusing um um but yeah he, he maybe doesn't have uh, the the same um we don't get an epic boy like we typically do but uh the fact that we get a boy in a bass drop for the phantasm rap song during yeah. the credits uh, <laughs> chef's kiss chef's kiss
1: there i love that you know as we've said, like he doesn't carry the same level of maybe bravado that he once had. But lines such as the one you mentioned, but also the fact that he tells Reggie, "like you are the plaything of this version of the tall man," uh, is, a, is something that I absolutely love because it just shows kind of like how this is the embodiment of evil throughout each and every incarnation, and the fact that he's able to kind of belittle this antagonist that he has had for you know however many years and whatnot they've been fighting. And it kind of just goes again to show that you can have an antagonist in a horror film that does a majority of the heavy lifting with just their lines of dialogue. Not to say it's the first, and not to say it's the last, but just again, like more in line with somebody like Pinhead who like physically is not the one putting their hands on people. Of course, he has his minions and uh, other abilities and whatnot, but you're right in that it does channel a Pinhead vibe in a way that i wish we saw more, um, I suppose... Series regulars such as that. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of examples of like one and done characters and whatnot, but to see a character that's been able to be the central antagonist for an entire series and it's not the traditional, you don't want them to get their hands on you type of thing. It's more about, you know, their power that is so above the people that they're preying upon that they quite literally can have others do it for them or they can just chill with their words. Um, and, you know, Angus Scrim is somebody that I think uh, was a. Terrific performer that was able to get a lot out of uh, perhaps maybe what little there actually is to his character, right? I think that it's a pretty simple premise for whose character is, and they don't even really detail a lot of the backstory past what's explored in um, Oblivion, but he still is this very ominous being um, that I think you really couldn't have a final entry in the film unless you had him come back for one less show. But um, In terms of moving away, perhaps, from the positive aspects of Ravager, uh, I will say that this film's low budget is more noticeable than any of the others. Uh, And, you know, it's important to keep in mind that originally this was conceptualized as a YouTube series of shorts, like I said. But man, it is uh, certainly rough in uh, in the special effects department to the degree that at times, it feels like Reggie himself has to make concessions to his actions just to appease those. Uh, And what I mean by that is like the first instance where the orbs show up and they're chasing him in the Barracuda, you know, the series has always had one foot in being cheesy and comical, but now you have him like driving the Barracuda and like blind firing behind him. And like these, just these like over the top ridiculous moments that when you talk about ridiculous with phantasm it's like yeah there's plenty of examples but it's kind of like leaning more towards this is just really bad <laughs> to a certain degree like it for me it was one of those things where i was like man i wish that they didn't try to step outside of the shadow of their budget really Yeah.
0: Again, it's like, yeah, the the reason that, you know, four doesn't come off messy is because it does stay like within. It doesn't do a lot because it's staying within the thing to still kind of conceal it. And yeah, it's with this one you can definitely tell that they said, you know what? Again, this is the last one. Fuck it. We got to we got to do it. We just got to do it. We got to try our best. And again, I think it almost even still adds to the charm and like some of the tone of this movie of like this uh, you know, that the the idea of um that these are like realities like touching at certain points and then it kind of creates this like uncanny Uh, effect to to the um, environments at times so like uh you know that's how i'm gonna choose to uh, read some of these (laughs) bad digital effects because yeah the, the digital effects are not great but i mean hey we still get some practical orb kills we still get some nice blood sprays and things like that but the fact that uh, some of the gunfire is cgi'd and it just like yeah um it, but then again it's like uh we we got him shooting at the the spheres doesn't look the best but it's like hey we got him whipping around the cuda and like i'll take that <laughs> you know so i'll uh take some uh win some lose some i guess but um but again it, it kind of adds a little bit to uh the, this idea of you know we uh the way that um we see Mike explain it and like he kind of explains, uh, you know, in this like midway point where he's like, you know, I've been reading up on this theory of like this, like uh, um, what is it uh, that he's talking about the, the realities being like built upon each other like a sphere membrane theory, Oh, uh, right, right. which uh, which is fun. I like that we get a kind of different take on, uh, you know, the typical multiverse uh, kind of alternate timeline thing that, you know, people uh, instead of us getting, a uh, you know, pencil through the paper explanation, I like that. We kind of get this uh uh, i love that's delivered like very offhandedly and that has like this comedic moment of just like he just like stops trying to explain it's like ah (laughs) the book because again (laughs) it's like they can't really explain it too much so it's just like here i'm not gonna even try but like here's what's kind of going on so because uh, i found myself you know throughout the film thinking to myself okay is so is this real which reality is the real one uh is has this all been a dream in reggie's head the whole time and that's like no no no, no. the both realities are real and like these are just like kind of having these uh the, these collisions happening um so so it kind of has that feel to it and and i love that um with this you know big idea of these realities like collapsing in and like all these realities and there's all these different tall men and like, yeah, you've been just the toy for this tall man is like kind of the ultimate like send off for scrim because it's like he wins and not only does he win he in his monologue he's like no i won and you like never even stood a chance like you literally (laughs) thought this whole time like no 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 like i literally won four movies ago but now but i've been just like having fun and like i thought that was like a nice like yeah you
1: know what tall man does deserve to win (laughs) like fuck (laughs) you guys he's been putting a lot of work robbing all those graves man but uh i do like the idea again like when they present those different realities there's one towards the end where it's Reggie in a, basically like an asylum, right? And you start to see people in the asylum that resemble, you know, the tall man. And I think it's even, uh, the woman from the graveyard at the very beginning of the series. Right. And they present this reality where it's like, Oh, he's projecting these fantasies onto other people. And then they play up the idea that, Oh, he's got dementia. And this is all a byproduct of, you know, his mind, uh, basically unraveling in these different things. And again, you know, that gives this movie a narrative structure that I think it deserves more credit than it probably gets. And, you know, while I have my reservations on the CGI and the effects and whatnot, um, you get these awesome set piece shots where it's like, you have the gigantic spheres uh, and orbs that are like tearing through buildings or they're, you know, stalking Reggie in the woods. Like, I love that because it plays up that ridiculous nature of just like, the tall man's plans and the fact that, you know, what does he do when he has absolute power? He takes his normal size Christmas ornament orbs and he just makes them like times a thousand. Um, And I just, I really did like that aspect of it. I think where it starts to lose me is like when Mike shoots an RPG at the tall man, right? (laughs) That's one of those things that uh, it's just like so hilarious. And that kind of is at the point where the movie has this almost like phantasm Mad Max twist to what it's trying to do, which, you know, Mm -hmm. I suppose has varying degrees of success uh, and is not done favors by like expanding the cast because the characters that they had are already so strong. And it makes me wonder why it took for the very end of the film for them to allow uh, a Rocky cameo from Gloria Henry. Like I would have fucking loved for her to have been the other person when that apocalypse storyline kicks in, like just her having Rocky come back, you know, you get enough recognition just from the name of that character returning itself that maybe she could have carved out a whole new chapter of her character's importance in that universe with that so that kind of bugged me with the second half of the film if you will she she literally could have been chunk because it was funny because yes.
0: when the comes when the credits hit the first time i go wait i go rocky is supposed to be in this did i miss it i go was mm. her cameo that quick and then we have this scene afterwards seeing her and i was like why wasn't she in the rest of the movie like yeah. oh my god like she could have she definitely could have been doing all these things but um but yeah for the uh you know the they we have like these kind of different set pieces and again it like kind of um, it feels like it's uh, again like uh, these things kind of just like keep repeating I feel like that kind of maybe leans into like the, the multiple realities of it that's just like no like these are in certain realities this is just like how it's doomed to go when it comes to the tall man that these certain things are gonna keep repeating even the fact in like I you know because I find it funny like you know they shoot the RPG and it made me think and there's like a scene where Reggie's like you know strapping up with all the stuff that he's got in the trunk and it's like yo guys it's been five movies and y'all haven't learned that like you're going to need more than guns yeah uh to to like guns have not been doing it and i love how that's been a recurring theme like throughout the entire series it's just like all right we got to load up with all these weapons and we're just gonna blow them the fuck up all the time it's like yo y'all have tried this three times uh like and again but it kind of plays on the inevitability of it of like yeah it doesn't matter what they try to do because they're they're gonna lose like that's just how things are gonna go in this
1: reality I even like that we get a scene where he unloads on the empty man or the tall man rather uh, at point blank range. And he's just like, your weapons do nothing to me. And it's like, yeah, man, we like it's been 40 years. You still haven't picked up on the fact that this has been a fruitless endeavor in terms of like, even the quad barrel does nothing to him, which he learned at the end of the last movie. But yeah, you know, it does speak to that again, that every everyday man kind of blue collar hero that you have who, you know, is very unconventional in terms of being the, as you put it, like the sort of final girl of this series. And yet, again, feels very true to who that character was from the first film. And if anything, you know, has been strengthened as a character based on those relationships relationships. Rather than actually ever becoming uh this sort of uh, warrior of the apocalypse as he puts it. Bummer because
0: like in uh in four we get like kind of a callback to like cause they've always like had little hints that like you know Mike is supposed to be like this like kind of resourceful MacGyver type, like and we see that um in the second movie especially. Um and we see it a smidge in the first movie and then they kind of abandon it for three, and then the fourth one he's like trying to like make this contraption and it's like, oh, he's gonna like use one of the sentinel spheres to like do it against him because like Like, I figure, like, why haven't y'all like realized that from like the second or third movie that like you can use the spheres against them? That like that's the kind of stuff, and they're just like, no, we're still gonna use bombs. Uh, we're yeah. still gonna just shoot them a bunch. And like the fact that like you know Resistance Mike in in uh, this movie is like supposed to be like, yeah, things have gotten worse, and we're the survivors. But it's just like all you guys are doing is still running around with guns. Uh, when you have again like you know giant uh, Sentinel spheres floating around out there. Uh, which was definitely super awesome uh it obviously couldn't do more with the scale on that so i like that we kind of get like a news news clipping version of it and it kind of gave it like a little war of the worlds feel uh, a little bit it was kind of cool
1: yeah i think that that was definitely the element of Four's finale that i dislike the most just the fact that he's got this like master plan that he's working on for that third act and then it's just like oh he was making a bomb and it's like Okay. Why did you think that was going to work? Like that was the payoff that I did not want in terms of like, oh, he's going to show why he is a formidable foe for the tall man. And then, you know, it's the type of thing where it's like, okay, so this is just another poorly thought out plan. And it's like, this is a fourth movie in the series. Granted, I understand why they couldn't go larger than life again, because mm-hmm. of the constraints and whatnot, but It was kind of like, oh, this feels like a messy wrapping up before you get that more bittersweet sort of poignant ending. And I will say for Ravager, it's the type of thing where, you know, at times it is very messy, but it kind of finds itself in that conclusion with having something that is equally bittersweet and poignant, right? You get that one reality where uh, uh, Reggie is, you know, in the hospital bed, he's clinging to life. And he's got Mike and Jody by his side. And then he's saying like, oh, I'm just grateful to see both of you. Uh, And that is like a very fitting ending, I feel like, for a movie that is a series that has very much been about found family and all these different things like brotherhood and loyalty that we've been talking about Um, to the degree that it's like, sure, they've essentially lost this kind of fight against the uh, tall man and whatnot. But They have each other, right? And I think that that is an ending I can get behind because it rings very true to, again, who these characters have been since the first film. Um, And it feels very fitting. And it's not something that you need a big budget to do or even much, you know, direction outside of just letting these people play these characters that they have been for all these years.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really great juxtaposition in the fact that it's like, yeah, in one reality, like, oh, nope, you guys have hit the the hell point, you guys have ultimately lost, Uh, there's no hope whatsoever, and then in the other reality, it's like, yeah, we get this uh, just sweet moment of uh, the guys together as, you know, Reggie uh, being the one in the bed, fittingly as he has been, you know, the one for the franchise, so this was, again, a nice fan service moment where we get, like, you know, montage moments from the previous films. Um, and, but also like we do get this again, like, you know, earnest scenes of the guys just like kind of saying, you know, how they feel about each other and the, the appreciative. And again, it's like, so in one reality we lost and like, in, in this reality, we still might lose, but at least, you know, we kind of get to lose on our terms and be together when it happens versus, um, you know, them kind of, uh, the way that it plays out in the apocalypse era.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a much more creative way to handle the fifth and fifth and you know final entry in a series that had the least amount of resources and I would say even studio. There was no studio involved, right? So I think that for them to be able to take this entire series as weird and varied as it's been and deliver something that feels like a fitting ending uh, is really you know it's a quality of this movie that I hope. If people are, you know, making their way through the series and whatnot, they can look past some of the rough edges to it, multiple rough edges that this one has, because at the end of the day, you do get that nice payoff um, for those characters. But I guess, you know, in chatting about Ravager and we've talked about the series as a whole, I'd love to know how you rank these movies, uh, because I think that it's going to be a little bit different for everybody in terms of how they kind of lean into certain... I guess, you know, I describe the series as being the smorgasbord of tones and thematics. It's really impossible for me to ever really truly guess, you know, what people's rankings are for these. So I'd love to find out, you know, which ones resonated with you the most.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we've kind of teased out, uh, kind of what our respective lists look like a little bit. And, um, so I'll start right at the bottom. Again, it's, it's Oblivion, um, I've mentioned. And again, it's, a, it's a serviceable film, but at the same time, it just doesn't have enough oomph for any, like, kind of, Punch it just kind of feels like it feels like another like uh, again it feels more like just another one to keep the franchise alive and like in people's minds more than them kind of going for a finale in the fourth one. um Though it is still serviceable and has its uh, moments, we get the little backstory of uh, of Jedediah Morningside. <laughs> the still the most evil caretaker name you could have, even if you are not, um, you know. Infected by Tall Man energy, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so it still has its uh things here and there, but uh, it's at the bottom, unfortunately. Uh, at uh, at the fourth slot, I have this film. Uh, Ravager again. I do still feel like it is a nice. Uh, it, it's a nice finale, but it again, like isn't the best that it could be. Like it, it really d- is a bummer that it, this came out in like 2016, and uh, so it, it was still kind of around in like some of these like GoFundMe eras. And it's like, well, I, I bet you if they would have actually like really tried to like you know fundraise some money, they could have gotten some uh, a little bit more money to like kind of you know put the polish on it for it to be a uh, more worthy finale of the series. But the effort is there. The earnestness is there. Um, and I still, like, you know, I felt satisfied uh, as a culmination of the series of getting the story wrapped up. Uh, what, it, what it all means. Um, it all means nothing. Um, I kind of, <laughs> I, I, I kind of again, like the, the kind of uh, bittersweetness of the ending of it. Kind of, you know, reflecting, you know, the bittersweetness of a, uh, you know, 40-year saga ending. So I, I still am satisfied with it at the 3 slot um it's actually pretty close um i was going back and forth between 2 and 3 um but i'm going to put 3 here in the middle um it's very fun um you know we get some new uh, fun side characters um has a couple of my favorite scenes uh in the series in there um cuz uh what's uh cuz we obviously get the introduction of rocky but uh the the little kid um, Tim, yes, uh, Tim, uh, his like little, um, home alone death trap sequence, uh, voiding off the looters is probably like one of my favorite set pieces. Cause it's like one of the few, we actually have like human on human, uh, action happening and it, it, it's actually like very well shot. Um, and, and I like the, uh, there, they kind of tried to bring in some more of the dreamy elements that they had left out of too, and, uh, bring those back in. But then again, it was a uh, kind of a uh, weird. Uh, a Michael Baldwin kind of had to settle back into the role, and uh, even though he's kind of away for most of that movie, anyways, and uh, which was kind of you know annoying after we set up like into them, like you know really getting to see them go out together. So it was like kind of disappointing that way. But it's very fun. Has some great action pieces. Uh, we get some you know good car stuff in it. Um, and uh, and and it's really good. We and the the mo- it probably has um one of the better mausoleum finales as well. Um, the the look of the mausoleum looks really good in it. We get a lot of sentinel deaths in three um, and, and a lot of um, general weird shit in it. So a three is uh, nice. They're snug in the middle. And then at number two, I have number two. Um, I really enjoy the, the, you know, like the, you know, gearing up like they are taking the fight to the tall man. Like they are like, they are, you know, it, it, it's weird because two still feels like there was like another movie in between it and one that we like, didn't get to see. And it's, a, it's kind of a weird feeling. So it's like, you feel like you missed a little bit, but at the same time, I kind of like that. That's like, all right, yeah, we're, we are tall men hunters now and we're going to go on the road. And this is where I, again, like I was really endeared to, to Mike and Reggie's um relationship, even though it was other Mike in this one. But I thought he was really good, and I thought he was kind of setting up stuff I was excited to see with Michael going forward in the franchise. And again, I think we get a different version of Michael going forward, even though we get the original back, um, just because I don't think he had kind of the same charisma that this uh, other Mike had. So I really like that one. I really like the the uh, Mad Max feel of it, like really kind of spreading out of this hometown It loses the dream elements, but at the same time, it kind of gets bolstered in some more of the uh, set pieces and then... At number one, I got the original. It is, it's really fucking good. Like, I really, <laughs> I think it's like, it's a genuinely really, really good movie. Like, it has uh, kind of some uh, Nightmare on Elm Street vibes as far as its uh, dreamlike quality and just the mystery and just the genuine creepiness of that first one is so good. The atmosphere is great. It has this nice haze uh, look to it, and uh, the score is just iconic and like. Uh, it's it's just a really good like, and I just like hadn't watched anything like it. Like it was it really took me aback that I was just like, what what is this movie? Like I'm so fascinated by it, and um, it just like really it's so captivating. It's like hypnotic in a way. So um, really I you can't top the first one, but I just love um you know the ride going across.
1: No, I think that's a uh, a totally respectable ranking of these movies. Uh, and yeah, so for me, my number five is going to be Ravager. This was a film that, as I said, you know, it is able to take the culmination of these characters' journey throughout all these films over subsequent decades and whatnot and give it a nice, fulfilling send-off, I think, while introducing this multiverse type of element to the storytelling that is quite unique and quite interesting. For me though, in between those was a little too much of a slog in terms of getting through the lackluster production value. Also the way that it's shot, everybody is like super zoomed in on, uh, which was <laughs> it kind of pissed me off throughout the movie. But I will say again, if you were to tell me that the origin of this was a web series and they were able to you know, have this come together in a way that does have an interesting uh, narrative angle to it, The film is, you know, it might be my least favorite of the series, but I would say that it is a a better quality than a majority of things that begin as whether you want to call it a fan film or, you know, this sort of independent, truly independent web era type of a film. Um, I'll say that it has far better ideas than a majority of uh, you know films that you could describe similarly. Uh, mm-hmm. For my money, my number four is going to be Oblivion. Um, I am a fan of the fact that they were able to take a lot of that old footage and incorporate it in a way that felt mostly seamless. Um, in a way where it was either commenting on Reggie and Mike's relationship, whether or not it was uh, you know there's a great scene where they're able to have a Call back to where Mike is hanging himself in the desert. And then it has this cut back to the original film, which has a scene where the tall man was getting hung by Jody and Mike. And I just like the fact that they were able to tie in these sort of parallels that really does display the history between these characters and the fact that there is a greater significance uh, to their actions and their journey, which makes it feel like it's something that they've been ruminating on for all these years. Um, Nothing really as dreamlike and sometimes illogical as it seems. There is still a great deal of character-driven thought, I think, behind a majority of what unfolds. Um, And... Like I said, I love that ending to that film. I think that that's a great sort of bittersweet capping to there. You know, it is quite bleak, but I think that it feels fitting uh, ultimately. And, you know, while they ended up making a fifth film, it's the type of thing where I feel that it could have quite literally just stopped with Oblivion and I would have been satisfied. Uh, My number three spot is also going to be the third film. I am a fan of the fact that they're expanding the world with these side characters that deliver something new to the, you know, posse or the world itself. You know, Rocky and Tim both I think are great additions. I like the fact that, you know, Tim gives us this little set piece that, as you kind of said, is like home alone-esque and I'll say has a Dennis the Menace flair to it. That Mm -hmm. also kind of initially you think like there's almost like a Taurus trap type of element to it. Like there's all these creepy things happening and I'm like, oh wait does somebody else in this universe have powers? But then it just ends up being, you know, it's just this badass kid that's able to uh, deal with intruders and the tall man alike. So from that aspect, I liked it. It was a little more into the zany sort of lightheartedness, uh, which, you know, at times worked for me. But then when you get into like the zombies at the end of it, that part didn't necessarily work for me as much, but I think that it's a testament to Coscarelli continually evolving on the idea of what, a phantasm film can be, um, and you know, again, mm-hmm. when you have a limited amount of resources or whatnot, the fact that you can keep reiterate or kind of reinventing a film and characters and the sort of logic between them, and still make it entertaining, even if it's in new ways or ways that you know sometimes work, sometimes don't. I think that's a testament to uh, just the love of the source material from the original and continuing that and taking those risks. Um, for my number two spot, though. That's going to be the second film. I absolutely love the dark tower, sort of Western apocalyptic vibes of this, mm-hmm. where they're chasing him across the country. Very much is like gunslingers chasing the man in black. And I liked also that it sets the precedent for leaning more into the idea of the tall man as a plague. Like mm-hmm. in the original film, it's very much contained to their small town. The second film really does open up the idea that he has been preying upon these small towns out you know, in the Midwest and further out West for who knows how long. How many small towns are there and what's something that is connected to all small towns? They all have graveyards, they all have mm-hmm. mausoleums, places where the dead have to go. And I like that they introduce the tall man who in the first film is introduced... And it has a certain layer of like this kind of comical nature where it's like, it's just a really tall, thin guy that has like this crazy swagger walk (laughs) who has these magical powers. But I like the fact that in the second film, it has a darker tone that shows, oh no, this is happening in countless other places. This is quite literally a scourge and a plague. And the fact that this could happen to your town, right? That's something that I think, when you think about when this movie was released and if it was the type of thing that people in small towns saw, it's like, oh, that would actually like, be a creepy element to this character that in the first film was like, again, he's got this kind of just swagger walk and he's got these little dwarfs that chase after people for him. Um, I also really like that it feels at times a little more body horror centric. Like you have that really great scene in a basement where basically the
0: gal's got the thing on her back.
1: Yes, exactly. It feels very much influenced by, um, dream warriors Mm and, certain parts. Like there's this whole telekinetic connection between all of them, sort of subplot that doesn't get fleshed out as much as I'd like. But I think that it adds these interesting wrinkles to the characters. And also, you know, the bigger budget is definitely notable in terms of the action set pieces. I mean, they introduce a quad barrel shotgun, which is probably one of the coolest sort of DIY pieces of weaponry they have in this series. And I'm just appreciative of the fact that, you know, while Coscarelli had significant restrictions in terms of going from the first to the second, like there's almost none of the dreamlike logic or world sort of um, shaping of the reality that they're in. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, it feels narratively stronger. He's able to really bolster up Reggie's character more. And I think that that gave him the, I don't know if it's the experience, but the confidence to attack the rest of the series with maybe more structure, but not compromising on the signature style of what makes that original film so strong. And it is no surprise that my number one pick is going to be the original film. Uh, At this point, I'm just kind of chirping what you had said. You know, it is that dreamlike logic. There is this hazy sort of like, is what I'm seeing even really happening? Mm -hmm. I love the fact that it is so upfront and so unabashed in introducing all of the different concepts of the like the tall man himself being this central antagonist, but at the same time, like his weaponry is these silver orbs that drill into people's skulls and then spurt blood out of them, or these dwarfs that are these actual like horrific, you know, monstrosities that are built from the bodies of people, or the fact that, you know, they bleed uh Heinz mustard yellow, blood everywhere, like little things like that. I think are so funny and so bizarre, but the film doesn't really bat an eye in terms of introducing any of them. And at the core of it, you have these characters that kind of go against the conventions of what you would expect from people at the heart of a horror film. Like, oh yeah, you know, they're either well-equipped to handle a situation or they quickly grow into it. And by the end of that first film, they still just feel like everyday people that you could probably see in the people in your own life to a certain degree, like in Mm -hmm. terms of the brother relationship or that friend that is, you know, might as well be an extension of the family. And it makes for something that while it is very dreamlike and it kind of skirts logic at times, the core root of it, it has a heart, right? And I think that at the core of a majority of horror films that are very experimental or low budget in these things, if you have that heart there, that makes it much easier to get on board with the concept and it allows the rest of the film to really be a standout, I think on top of that very strong foundation of you know characters you can get invested in, characters that in some extent you can see yourself in, um, and more importantly, characters that you become to care for in a very short period of time because that first movie is not very long, and they don't always have uh, let's say the robust acting chops that some <laughs> people might have been expecting from you know people that are in this uh, horror film or whatnot. But I think that you know the rough edges themselves of the original phantasm become just as endearing as the characters in that world that we're going to follow through five films. Um, And it was a a hell of a journey. And I was so thankful that I took the opportunity to, you know, dive into these movies, which you're like me, I'm sure your watch list is probably hundreds of films, if not thousands, (laughs) thousand films long. And, you know, making time for something that I normally wouldn't has resulted in, you know, an incredibly enjoyable experience and just seeing another sort of microcosm of horror filmmaking that is pure love for what's being Mm -hmm. made and, um, you know, not allowing certain, you know, studio trappings or conventions getting in the way of a creative, you know, allowing this sort of baby that they've been building and fostering and taking care of for all these years to, uh, you know, wither away and die without a fitting ending.
0: Yeah, I, I have so much admiration for the for the franchise and just its uh, longevity and, you know, its continuation to put in the effort to be creative and to be earnest. And uh you, I mean, I would put this franchise like, you know, I put it neck and neck with something like, you know, Final Destination franchise, like as those five films as a whole, or, you know, I would even watch, I would rewatch these five films over like most of the Friday 13th sequels, honestly. Um, like just because for at least the inventiveness, if anything, and, you know, even though the, you know, franchise uh, descends in quality as it goes down, we both pretty much had it in chronological order, except I liked five a little bit more than you. Um, uh, but even still, like it, 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 the investment that, um, that it has you, the way that it just uh, really, um, you know, commits to its characters and to its themes And uh, and just all that, you know, the ups and downs, you know, that consistency uh, is there and makes for a very strong core, you know, for for a series to to flourish and also like have a uh, impact on, you know, a certain, you know. Uh, Audience as well, so uh, hats off to to for sure, and uh, very very happy I was able to do this. And kind of even though it's like not the you know it's not super known, but it is known. But then it's also like you can watch this and you can see how it's influenced movies such as you know like Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, you know with this kind of Midwest fear angle that you're talking talk about in the first one uh, feels very Stephen King, and you can kind of see other kind of Stephen King adaptations kind of take a similar. Approach as this first one does, so it's like even if it's not, uh, you know, wasn't wasn't super successful, uh, it doesn't have the best scores or whatever. But like its influence is definitely there, whether it be, uh literally or just in, um, you know, people buying into, you know, committing themselves to a, a project that they just truly love.
1: Absolutely, and you know, in terms of like comparing it to other series the hit rate on this is so much higher than a majority of others. And I think that, you know, in terms of thinking about other series that are somewhat comparable, like, yeah, Final Destination, I think is a great shout. And then when you look at series that are much longer, like Friday the 13th that you mentioned, it's like, yeah, there's maybe five films in that series that I, would rewatch, right? And there's how many, right? At this point, so I think that again, for a film series to go through these sort of trials and tribulations of getting made as much as Phantasm did over the years, the fact that he was able to still capitalize on what makes the series so unique and deliver something that more often than not um, is delivering the, to the fan base what they want a continuation of, and really, you know, have this breadth of originality and inventiveness in each entry. Um, I think makes this series something special that, you know, hopefully uh, will only become more popular with horror fans. And, you know, that's the type of thing that uh, I really love about digging into series that I have no experience with or very limited experience with. But, uh, you know, man, as always, it was a pleasure having you back on. And I was so happy to round out this uh, series review of Phantasm with you. But uh, before I let you go, I would love for you to plug your excellent podcast, which I have been on several times at this point. And uh, any other socials that you have?
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's always a good time to come back. And glad that I had an excuse to finally like finish the series out. And. Uh And I really get to, uh, you know, uh, it was fun getting to talk with somebody that, like, had, like, a pretty similar uh, journey with it as me. So, like, that was uh, super fun. Um, You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterbox at underscore Daddy Disco. And you can uh, listen to my podcast, The Spectre Cinema Club, hosted by me and my buddy Garrett McDowell. Uh, We cover a different subgenre every month. Right now, we are covering Ash vs. the Evil Dead, uh, leading up to Evil Dead Rise. And then we got some... Fun stuff like remake comparisons and a celebration of camp coming up. So, super excited for that. And you can uh, follow us at Spectre Cinema on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, new episodes every Tuesday on whatever platforms. And you can also hear me as a rotating co host over on Pod and Pendulum. They uh, tackle franchises uh, in a row. And, uh, you know, that so you can hear uh, more extended thoughts on uh, Phantasm 1 from. um, from phantasm one from me if you want to go check that out
1: awesome man well thank you again this was a pleasure as always and uh, i look forward to chatting with you again in the future thank you bud thank you for listening to another episode of daily horror habit you can follow the show on twitter at daily horror pod or give me a follow at not funny j thanks again for listening and i'll see you guys next week